6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 120 through 134. Well, we are approaching the final sessions of our review of the book of Psalms. And tonight, we are undertaking a group of actually 15, but don't let that daunt you. They're very short, small ones. But they're clustered in a very well-known collection known as the Songs of Ascents, sometimes called the Songs of Degrees, Psalm 120 to 134. And uh, we're in the fifth of five books of Psalms. The book of Psalms is actually five books. If you count the books of Psalms separately, you actually have 70 books in the Bible. But that confuses people because everybody thinks of Psalms as a single book, and that's fine. But it's in five books, and we're in the fifth of those five books, which is sometimes called the Deuteronomy section, if you will, from Psalm 107 to the end, 150. We have um, Psalm 120 to 134, the songs of ascent is more descriptive than the songs of degrees. That's, that's actually, in my mind, a slightly misleading title. Yeah, they were songs of the pilgrim caravans. And uh, all, it, it, it echoes, many of them echoes, the captives returning from the captivity of Babylon, from Ezra 7, 9, and others. But aside from that, all able-bodied Jewish men, along with their families, uh, were to attend three of the seven Mosaic feasts every year. There were seven altogether, but three were compulsory according to Deuteronomy 16, 16. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which of course is the day after Passover. The uh, Feast of Shavuot, or Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Tabernacles. These three of the seven were required attendance. And what people did is they would go in caravans, in groups from their hometowns, wherever, up to Jerusalem. And as they went, they sang these hymns, 15 of them. They're called the Song of Ascents. They probably clustered at certain meeting places and then went together. You get the idea how that would go. And the rallying points are alluded to in, in several places in the scripture. And we even saw an example of that in Luke chapter 2. Remember when on the way home, it took a while for Mary and Joseph to realize Jesus wasn't among them because they're in a caravan group. And it took them in the first day's travel. They looked for their, and he, they had to go back and find him in the temple at 12. You remember the story in Luke chapter 2. Songs of Degrees is what um, it's sometimes labeled. Um, and the, it, it's the degrees, which implies uh, it leads to a legend or a view of these uh, Psalms that some scholars dispute, but I'll share it with you in case you run into it. There is a tradition that these refer to steps, and it goes to a story about Hezekiah. Remember King Hezekiah? He was one of the most godly of the kings of Judah, and he himself wrote many Psalms and Proverbs, and many people ascribe uh, some of these uh, songs of ascent to Hezekiah. 
He did, it was under his rulership that temple worship was restored. And there was also an incident recorded in 2 Kings 20 where God gives him an extra 15 years to his life. And as a testimony to that God was going to extend his life another 15 years, he asked for a sign. So, well, we'll use the sun, they're going to use the sundial of Ahaz. There's a famous sundial that was nearby. And uh, uh, the prophet uh, asks him, you want it to go forward or backward? Ten degrees. Well, he says, send it backwards, ten degrees. And so the sundial of Ahaz, the, the shadow moved back ten degrees to confirm that he had an extra 15 years. Now, many people ascribe the addition of those 15 years to the 15 songs of ascent. Except it doesn't really work for lots of reasons. One of the reasons, they're not 15 degrees, it's 10 degrees. It's not, you follow me, it doesn't necessarily, the 15 steps that go up, there are all these theories about the songs that are popular. You'll find it alluded to in some books, but um, it actually flies in the face of, of the views of most serious scholars. But having said all that, we clearly do view these, and, and, and clearly there's a well-established practice that they were sung as the pilgrims would go three times a year up to Jerusalem. So let's take the first one, which is a surprise. Seven little verses that harbor some surprises. And it really begs the question, from whence does the pilgrim come from? Okay? Let's just read the first four verses. It's a song of degrees or a song of ascents. That's the way it's labeled. Uh, and, the, and, uh, so. and the word degree, by the way, in translation actually means to go, to go up. It doesn't sound that way in our translation, but that's what the word, uh, uh, when we go up to the hill, we, we degree, we, we ascend, see? The psalmist says, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Let that sink in for a minute. This guy is he's starting his journey, but he's coming out of his distress. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from what? From lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. From slander. Lies about me. That's what he's coming out of. He's on his way to Jerusalem, for the, but he's coming out of a situation where he's in distress, and he's asking to be of, of the Lord to be delivered from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. And uh, so wonder where he lives. Wonder where he's coming from. It sounds like he's leaving a tough neighborhood. Indeed, we'll find out. What shall be given unto thee? He's talking to the lying lips. What shall be given unto thee or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? The answer comes from God, in effect. You can look at this antiphonally, if you will. Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Now, the juniper is the wood that makes the best charcoal, the ju juniper roots. And so this is, that's what the destiny of the slanderers apparently is going to be. But then he has verse 5, which I find fascinating. The psalmist says, Woe is me! that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. What? Now, if you're normally just reading your Bible without a lot of biblical knowledge, you skim over this and just keep going. That's fine, except stop for a minute. 
what on earth is this all about? Meshach, he sojourns in a region called Meshach, and he dwells in the tents of Kedar. Well, if you remember the sons of Noah, there were three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Out of Shem comes not only Abraham, but the Shemites of all kinds. Ham, of course, is Egypt and North Africa, what have you. Japheth is Gentile domain. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, and Meshech. So if he's in the, in the region of Meshech, he is in Gentile country. That's where he's coming from. That's interesting. It gets worse. Meshech, he's the son of Japheth. He's a Japhethite, if you will. From Shem, however, we know, of course, comes Elam, Asher, Arphaxed. And from Arphaxed, a whole string through Peleg and so on, down to, guess who? Abraham. And that's the one, of course, that we're uh, interested in, associated in, uh, from whom come not only the Jews, but others. Let's take a look at who comes from Abraham. And all of this you can uh, chase down in Genesis 11, the so-called table of nations. The descendants of Abraham, of course, he had three women, Sarah, his wife, Hagar, the Egyptian, the Hamite, if you will, and Keturah, a concubine. Now from Sarah, of course, comes Isaac, no surprise to most of us. From Hagar comes Ishmael, and from Keturah, a whole family of tribes, Zimram, Joksim, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And from these, we have Sheba and Dedan, and a bunch of others that account for Saudi Arabia, and also the Bedouins. So a true Arabian would come from Keturah, not from Sarah or Hagar. You say, wait a minute, what about the Ishmaelites? Technically, if left alone, you wouldn't consider them Arabians, okay? But under Ishmael, you, he had 12 sons. Just like Jacob had 12 sons, Ishmael has 12 sons. And guess what? And we have, let me back up. Um, under Isaac, we have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, of course, obviously is Israel. Esau was the troubled one, if you will. And he deliberately, to offend his parents, took to wife sons of Ishmael. In fact, the sister of Nebajath. And so Edom marries into the descendants of Esau and Ishmael all intermarry. And the term Arabs is used loosely of that whole collection. Technically, if you mean by Arab, a resident of Saudi Arabia, that's clearly an Arabian. But the, through usage and, and, and just loose jargonese, the sons of Ishmael are included in that label by the press, calls all, the, all those kinds of people, if I can use it, say it that way, as Arabs. But you can talk about Egypt, Iran, uh, Turkey, a number of the Middle Eastern areas, and you haven't mentioned an Arab yet. In fact, they're hostile to the Arabs. Egyptians are Hamites. They're not Shemites at all. And of course, Elam holds itself. There was a war between Iraq and Elam, uh, Elam that lasted eight years. Over a million people killed. So they have hatred among themselves almost as much as they hate Israel. The whole, when, when the press uses the term Arab, what they probably really mean is a Muslim. They're united by a legacy of hate, not genealogy or even geography. And Esau, an Edomite, the traditional enemy of Israel, they were an enemy in the womb before born. But that um, animosity 
continues, obviously, uh, especially as Esau marries deliberately into that world to offend his parents. So with all that background, when we say that when this psalmist says, I come from the Gentile area of Japheth, and I sojourn in the tents of Kedar, this is a Jew coming to to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts who lives among Arabs, or more precisely, Muslims. Wow. Let's pay more attention to what he's saying. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Well, Meshech means he's in Gentile land. Kedar means he, develops, he, he dwells in Arab tents. You with me? Let's see what he says about this. My soul hath long dwelt with him that, what? Hateth peace. He is forced to dwell with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Wow. What a description of the last 1,300 years, at least. This you know, is astonishing. You know, you realize, in fact, even the doves in Israel are finally waking up to the reality that their enemies don't want peace. Generally, you can argue for peace, and presumably that's arguing for, you know, motherhood or apple pie or something. No, there are people that don't want peace. They, the, his, the adversaries of Israel demand Israel's uh, uh, extermination. That's not, there's no way you're going to make peace with people who are committed to your extermination. Nine times the PLO walked away from the negotiating table when Israel was prepared to give up virtually everything being asked. They walked away, the PLO walked away because it was an all or nothing thing and among the all was the, was the extermination of Israel, Israel's right to exist. When you understand that, you begin to understand the dilemma faced, facing the Middle East. Here the, here the psalmist says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Does that describe the political situation today? Where even among the ranks of their adversaries, you've got the Fatah and the Hamas pretending to get together, but anyone that knows what's going on knows it's not going to work. They hate each other. And you've got the Hamas in the south that are Sunnis. You've got the Hezbollah up north, which are Shiites. And the Shiites and the Sunnis hate these hate each other almost as much as they hate Israel. No, these are people that are committed to violence, committed to war. There's the only thing they understand is force. There's no, there's no deterring uh, alternatives. This is, these are the seven verses that makes up the first psalm. Now, if you carefully apply the principles of higher criticism, clearly, this had to have been written recently. And I'm being facetious, of course. This, you know, what the critics do when they don't understand a passage, they always say, well, you late date it, you know. Daniel 11, verses 5 through 35, that outlined the 400 years between the Testaments in advance, obviously must have written written later. It couldn't be supernatural prophecy. What inspired David, or whoever, wrote the psalm to say it this way, I have no idea. And there's all kinds of conjectures, they don't matter. That's what it says. And does it apply today? In spades. In spades. And uh, isn't it amazing how timely 
the Psalms are even today? I've spared you an awful lot of historical background. As you pick up a commentary on Psalms, there's all kinds of scholastic conjectures. Gee, did David write it here, or was it really David, or was this really written after the Babylonian, was post-exile, after the Babylonian captivity, this, that, and there's arguments both ways. Who cares? I mean, a scholar does, and that's fine. I'm not disparaging it. But for you and I, all we want to know is, what does it say? How does it apply to Israel? And more importantly, how does it apply to us today? So we've tried, I've spared you a lot of the very colorful, fascinating background. Here and there, we'll look at a few things, but that this is our real focus. Okay, the next Psalm, 121, in effect, is a view from the hills. I want you to visualize, as we go through these Psalms, the pilgrim who started, apparently, in Gentile land, encumbered by Arab neighbors. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And now he gets his first view of the hills. He's going to Jerusalem to worship. And now he can see the hills of Jerusalem in the distance. Psalm 121, a song of degrees, or a sense. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee shall, uh, will not slumber. Now, when you look at... Uh, that first verse, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? Some scholars render that as a question. In other words, where is it coming from? And then that's the answer. You follow me? It's an antiphonal kind of thing. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. You know, it's interesting. No matter what direction you come from, when you approach Jerusalem, you approach it through the hills. It's, there's hills on, all the way around. Jerusalem. That's going to be celebrated later in the Psalms, but I, uh, for what it's worth. Okay, no matter what direction you come from. And it says in verse 3, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. It's because of verse 4 that I don't worry about Israel and Jerusalem. That doesn't mean it's going to be peaceful. There's a lot of trouble coming. But I know how it's going to end. Their history is written in advance. I read the final chapters. I know how it comes out. I do worry about America. Because I don't see any clear evidence that America will survive as a major factor into the final days. That's a reality that requires some study and careful thought. But moving on here, verse 5, The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. You see, you and I also are kept, protected, uh, uh, sheltered by the power of God. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 assures you that. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Strange phrase. It probably can, day, sun measures days, the moon months. So it can just look at it poetically if you like. But uh, the sun certainly can smite thee by day if it's too hot and you're not protected. You know, we can visualize that pretty easily. But this moon by night's kind of a mystery um, because I, it, some, most scholars recognize that in the old days, not so much in recent years, but in the old days, people tended to associate 
dementia to moonlight. And, and uh, the, uh, you know, struck by, uh, moonstruck is a term. And people, the word lunacy comes from Luna, the moon. Now, we don't embrace those kinds of ideas today, but that certainly was the popular conception, at least. So the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night, could be a catering to that perspective. And uh, so, uh, but I do understand that the word epileptic in the Greek comes from the moon. Doesn't mean it caused it, don't misunderstand me, but that was an attribution that was popular in the early times. But the psalmist continues, The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Boy, you and I can take comfort in that. What's the worst your enemy can do? He can, all he can do is kill you. But see, the Lord will preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Wow. See, verse 7 is really an echo of Romans 8.28. I don't know about you. I tab my Bible with that there to check it's still there. But once a day, make sure that Romans 8.28... For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are thee called according to the purpose. What are the three most important words in that verse? The first three. For we know. Not believe or hope. No, we know that the Lord, you know, watches over us. And so, uh, the, uh, remember Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, was in prison for 13 years, and yet he could Say to his brothers later, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Boy, if we could just remember that. When we come into adversity, to take the confidence that God, everything that happens is Father filtered. And that and God has a purpose in it. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in, even from this time forth and even forevermore. Do you know what the name for doorpost is in Hebrew? Mezuzah. And a mezuzah is the little holder that you'll see on any Jewish threshold. Sometimes, not just on the outdoors, but in every room in the house. A little mezuzah. It has, it has scripture in it. Basically, usually it's the Shema. Or, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, 6, we're right in there. Um, or it could easily be verse 8 of the psalm. My help cometh from the Lord. That's the same thing that Proverbs said. The Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. That's the same thing that uh, uh, Psalm 37 highlighted. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. And uh, Hannah said in 1 Samuel 2, he will keep the feet of his saints. And uh, Jude closes the, the, just before the book of Revelation, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling and to present you faultless and so on. So these ideas are not obviously foreign to us. But let's move on to Psalm 122. Now we've seen the hills. We're getting close enough. Now we can actually see Jerusalem itself, the site of Jerusalem. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Now, by the way, this term house of the Lord, if this was written by David, that may surprise you, except you need to realize that the house of the Lord is not restricted to the temple itself. That was yet future from David's point of view. His son uh, was to subsequently build it. But that term is also used of the tabernacle. 
in 1 Samuel 2 and elsewhere. So for what it's worth. Um, some scholars attempt to deny David's authorship because of some of this language. But uh, actually, Jeroboam's concern in the rebellion against uh, uh, Solomon's son uh, highlights the practice of pilgrimages to come to Jerusalem. That was one of the things Jer- bothered Jeroboam. So those, this, these pilgrimages and these songs of ascents were obviously operative back right there in those early years. Continuing, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. The word Jerusalem, by the way, really means the foundation for peace. Shalom being peace. Jerusalem. Uh, But there will be, of course, no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace comes. Many verses attest to that, most principally Zechariah 12, verses 2 and 3, which indicates everyone that takes up the issue of Jerusalem is destined frustration. In fact, a global hernia will result. And uh, literally, read it yourself. Yeah, exactly. So let, but let us not forget, as Christians and New Testament Christians, let's not forget or neglect our Jewish heritage. Even whether you're Jewish or not, we, we serve a Jewish king and we worship from a Jewish Bible in a church that was founded by Jewish believers. And we need to n- never lose sight of that. We have an untold debt to all of them, of course. But... Uh, There is a millennial prophecy in Hosea 3 that we might just highlight as we pass through here. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness forever. So this includes a prophecy that goes to the millennium. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.